What is up, fools? This is the QTR Podcast. Today is June 25th, 2020. Is everybody having a great day? Great. Are you ready to take another red pill like your third or fourth over the last six days, courtesy of the fine folks at the QTR Podcast? I sure as hell am. I got my man Richard Gage on the line today. First and foremost, I want to shout out the people that make this podcast possible, my patrons. Patrons are people that sign up and donate a monthly recurring sum to help support the podcast. I'm going to shout out my patrons, then I'm going to give you the two rules for the podcast, and we're going to be well on our way. First and foremost, this podcast is brought to you by my friends over at JM Bullion. JM Bullion is my exclusive gold and silver provider. I order from them and like to own gold and silver bullion because I don't believe anybody's bullshit about anything. Whether it's the story the government's giving me on the virus, whether it's the story the government's giving me about the Federal Reserve, I just don't buy it. And owning gold and guns and ammunition, those things make me feel very warm and fuzzy at night. The only place I will order gold and silver is from JM Bullion. They've been in business for nearly a decade. They've done over $3 billion in sales. And QTR podcast listeners have their own salesperson there. The absolutely lovely Kathy with a K, K-A-T-H-Y, at jmbullion.com. Shoot her an email. Tell her that you heard about JM Bullion on the QTR podcast and you want a discount and free shipping on your order. And Kathy will hook it up for you. Thank you to my friends over at JM Bullion for supporting the podcast. This podcast is also supported by my friend and fellow Liverpool supporter, Pete Hedgetis, over at The Trader's Path. The Trader's Path is a wonderful day trading community that is taking the place of all of the nonsense and bullshit day trading communities. You know the ones that I'm talking about, the ones that are out there just to grab your money and to front run your trades. Pete used to go to those and then he decided these all suck so I'm going to start my own and that's exactly what he did. So Pete started the Trader's Path where they offer daily watch lists, they offer a daily live stream, they offer investor education, and it's a wonderful community to be a part of. Pete posted a couple of big winners from last week, one of which was APT that I noticed. I know Pete, he's an honest guy to do business with, I appreciate his support, and if you listen and you like the podcast, give Pete a play, man. The link to the Trader's Path is in the podcast description. This podcast is also brought to you by my longtime friends and longtime supporters at Sang Lucci and Wall Street Jesus. Their flagship product is the Sang Lucci Steam Room, which is a wonderful piece of software that can really pay for itself uh, in a very short amount of time if you don't use it like a herb, as Sang Lucci would say. And that is the Sang Lucci Steam Room. The Steam Room monitors unusual activity coming into the illiquid options market. It's different from normal unusual options activity feeds that you might have. The Steam Room is a proprietarily programmed piece of software that nobody else has. They've been working on it for 10 years and it's obviously worked very well from them because my man Lucci's worth, I think about 2 million. Let's just say he's doing very well and he still drives a Camry. That is a modest man if I've ever met one. He's also a good friend of mine, somebody that I trust to do business with. So hit up Lucci, tell him QTR sent and that you want a discount on any of his products. The Steam Room, the 3LT Playbook, which are his three rules to become a seven, that he used to become a seven-figure investor, and the Sang Lucci Master Course, which is investor education without the nonsense, bullshit, bow ties, croquet, squash, and just general fucking annoying things that come out of the financial industry. Check out my man Lucci over at the Sang Lucci Steam Room. This podcast is also brought to you by my friends at Corvus Gold, my buddy Robert Mizello, Jay Mincemeyer, Russ Valenti, my homeboy Nicholas Parks, Nathan Michaud at Traders for a Cause, my favorite charity, Chris Bede, Ken R, Crichton Titus, Big Dog is in the house, Will Smith, Michelle Koning, Dylan Davis, and Ken. I want to shout out some of my newest patrons, too, because I said I was going to do that last episode, and I didn't because I didn't have the shit up. Brendan, BTF, what's up, brother? Thank you so much. My friend Ian Boyle is in the house. Scott Foreman is here with me as well. Thank you for your continued contribution. Sean Stanistreet is in the house. Anant Gold is in the house. My homeboy Jeff Tony and Richard Heath got your email the other day. Warren Marshborn, my friend Kaiser and Black Pajama Squad. Thank you guys so much. And some people that have been with me for a while, like Michael Lynn, my friend Dennis, 
James O'Bearn, thank you, my brother. Gavin Hart, uh, Peter Peichkowitz, I think is how you say that. Uh, Bluey Parker is still here. Gene W. Cruz, my friend Flo Algo, and Michael Hahn. Let's get started with the show. First and foremost, this is not investment advice, life advice, or any kind of advice. This is just discussion for people that have an open mind. We encourage that. We're going to have a little discourse today. Don't freak out. Don't panic. Don't send me hate mail. Talk to your therapist if you have a problem, okay? I don't want to hear your nonsense or your bullshit. This podcast, in order to help you get a nice limber mind and do some mental gymnastics, requires a two-drink minimum. That means that you take two alcoholic drinks and you consume them before, not during, but before. There's a two-drink minimum before you hit play on the podcast. And then have two more while the podcast is on. I don't care, folks. I want you to be creative. It's the way you can express yourself by what you drink throughout the podcast. I think it's time to get the damn show started. Very excited to have with me on the line today, uh, Richard Gage, AIA. Richard Gage is a 30-year San Francisco Bay Area architect and member of the American Institute of Architects, and he is the founding member of Architects and Engineers for 9-11 Truth. Richard has been on the podcast several times in the past, uh, keeping us up to date on what his organization is currently working on, uh, Architects and Engineers for 9-11 Truth. Richard, very nice to have you back on the podcast, buddy. Thank you, Chris. It's great to be here with you again. So how are things, Richard? The last time that we talked was back in November of 2019, and the University of Alaska Fairbanks study had just come out. Um, I was thinking maybe to start today, you could kind of give my listeners a little bit of information about that study, which I will link to in the podcast description and maybe uh, let us all know, myself included, what's what's been new on that front. Well, sure. Uh, and for those who don't know anything about our work, um, we now have more than 3,000 architects and engineers signed on to the petition demanding a new investigation into the destruction of all three of the World Trade Center skyscrapers uh, based on the, the evidence of the explosive demolition, which uh, involves incendiaries. And uh, if people are want to learn more about that and the third tower that came down on 9-11, I would encourage you to uh, look that up on our website, AE9, the, uh, our documentary, 9-11 Explosive Evidence Experts Speak Out. So that's the foundation, of course, of what we're talking about here today. So uh, I'm uh, quite uh, quite happy to to update people but i always i always uh, have to start by just telling people that i mean there's this elephant in the room and it's a 47 story skyscraper that came down suddenly symmetrically uh, into its own footprint in the afternoon of 9/11 at free fall acceleration fast as a bowling ball falling out of the sky this looks exactly like the old hotels in Las Vegas where they bring them down by controlled demolition, of course. So um, this is the obvious smoking gun and all of the forensic evidence and eyewitness testimony from the first responders, et cetera. They support that. Um, so that's why we have, uh, for instance, five fire commissioners uh, in the New York uh, area city, all unanimously supporting a new investigation into the destruction of these three towers and the petition, which has gone uh, with 61 exhibits of our evidence uh, to the U.S. attorney, who has already agreed to submit this to a special grand jury. And we have now filed a mandamus lawsuit to force the attorney uh, to the U.S. attorney there in Manhattan to uh, prove that he's done just that. So uh, that's one of the, uh, the the historical pieces of ongoing legal action that we've done. Uh, another uh, is to sue the FBI uh, because they they have evidence of incendiary and explosive destruction of all three towers on 9-11. Uh, and they did not provide that to Congress which was they were mandated to do through the uh, 2015 congressional, uh, 9-11 congressional review. So uh, that's uh, 
real important uh, that that will force the the FBI to release this information to Congress, which will make it public as well. Yeah, that's exceptionally interesting, and that's one of the things that we uh, the lawsuit. And I don't know, are you guys involved also? with the uh, Lawyers Committee for 9-11 Inquiry. Are you guys working together? Because I think they're also suing the FBI, aren't they? Yeah, we're, we're, we're both uh, co-plaintiffs on that, along with family members of the victims of 9-11. Uh, so this will indeed make the evidence that the FBI has of ours. In fact, uh, and, and what they have uh, is a the uh, original documentary that we made that was back in, uh, what was it, 20, 2009 or 10, they actually responded to the person who sent this to them. And they said, uh, this is very interesting, seems backed by thorough research and analysis. So they've got themselves in a corner. They obviously had it in order to respond to it like that. They, they, they evaluated it uh, in that response. And this is exactly what the uh, what Congress has required of them in 2015, which they did not provide the evaluation of all the evidence that they have received since uh, the original 9-11 commission report came out. And, and so also what they had was the 25 page peer reviewed paper that in the Bentham Open Chemical Physics Journal uh, that proved that. There were incendiaries that uh, were found in all the World Trade Center dust samples that were tested by this team of eight international scientists led by Niels Herrett in Copenhagen. What did they find? They found incendiaries, uh, these red-gray chips, red on one side, gray on the other. Well, the, the red side is, is iron oxide and aluminum powder, uh, the ingredients of thermite, set in a, a bed of oxygen, silica, and carbon, which is organic material, which make, means that this is incendiary material that's been engineered to become more explosive. So we have uh, very, very strong proof of what brought the towers down, not just in this paper, but throughout the body of forensic evidence, which we've highlighted in YouTube. And so this is damning evidence that uh, once uh, the FBI releases to Congress uh, through as they will be forced to through this lawsuit. So what we've done now uh, in concert with the Lawyers Committee for 9-11 Inquiry is to package this evidence along with uh, the, the Alaska study, which we spent four years, $300,000 uh, of hundreds of, of supporters of AE 9-11 Truth uh, funding the finite element analysis put forth by Professor Leroy Halsey and his team of re PhD researchers, which we talked about the last time that you and I interviewed. Uh, this has now been released. The final report is out there now. And we're sending, uh, we've already sent 50 of them to uh, key engineers around the country. We'll be sending uh, 400 of these packages uh, to universities, and key uh, engineering associations and architectural associations, um, basically uh, demanding that they look at it. This is extremely important. What it does uh, is pull the rug out from underneath NIST, the National Institute of Standards and Technology, who was tasked by Congress to explain these uh, collapses, all three of them, to the American people. And uh, regarding the third collapse, it basically says... No way could NIST's theory of destruction by fire have brought this building down. Not one of the 12 or 14 steps that NIST describes in its collapse initiation theory could even have happened, much less all of them. Right. And, that, and what they concluded was that this building had to have been taken down by the removal, the simultaneous removal of all the columns in the building, starting with the interior columns, and then within a second or so, the exterior columns. Now, what can do that? There's nothing. 
Are you there? Right. <laughs> oh, sorry. I, mean, I thought I lost you. <laughs> Were you waiting yeah, that for me was to answer? A... Because I'm going to say thermite. That's what I'm going to say. <laughs> yeah, there's nothing uh, except thermite or explosives that can uh, that can remove all the columns at once. And all the columns have to be removed at once in order to bring this building down simultaneously, uh, you know, all four sides uh, symmetrically uh, at free fall acceleration. So this has been proven academically now in this four-year study. So what we've done now is taken that report and we've packaged it inside a request for correction is the formal term. Under the Data Quality Act, we can actually force agencies like NIST, the National Institute of Standards and Technology, to explain errors, we'll, we'll call them politely, it's basically <laughs> fraud, fraud on the American people. This request for correction includes that report, and it highlights eight key problems with the NIST report, in including components of their collapse initiation theory. For instance, the column 79 uh, side plate, which would have trapped uh, the girder from traveling off of the support on column 79, uh, the web stiffeners, which would have kept, which would have had supported the flanges and forced, would have had to have forced NIST to conclude that the girder would have had to have moved uh, 12 or more inches off of its seat on that plate. It includes the, the, uh, cascade of floor failures, which would have been impossible that NIST uh, claims, uh, was the case, and um, their entire global collapse analysis, their actual, they, they call it a progressive collapse. It would have, uh, uh, that, that each sequence would have caused the next thing to happen in what's called a progressive collapse, and none of those things could have happened. It includes the seismic data, which we can go into detail about, that proves that the explosions occurred prior to the building coming down. This tries to show that the seismic data is the building actually coming down and hitting the ground uh, inside the building, which is ludicrous for a number of reasons. Uh, we also include the eyewitnesses and audio evidence of explosions, which are massive. Um, and then uh, the eroded steel from Building 7, which FEMA documented in a metallurgical examination, which they say the ends of the beams were partly evaporated, uh, says one of the authors of the FEMA NIST report. Hot sulfur corrosion attack on the steel, uh, says uh, the, the team that did this report. And hot liquid molten iron, uh, you know, office fires, which... Building 7 is said to have come down by because it wasn't hit by a plane, right? It, it, we right. don't have jet fuel in Building 7. So office fires uh, can't possibly, is what we have left, uh, they can't possibly produce the temperatures associated with the melting of steel or iron. And yet there's abundant evidence of this, not only in Building 7, but throughout the World Trade Center. So this is the, the essence of the request for correction that's 100 pages that NIST now has about um, two months left uh, to respond to. So uh, we're looking forward to that response and I'm sure it will be another null response yeah, on what their can part. They, what can they say to kind of avoid responding? Can they do like, you know, sometimes when you file a FOIA request, they come back and say, oh, well, we can't because of this exception or that exception. What do you think that they're going to do to avoid addressing it? Yeah, they're going to say that we stand by our earlier report and they'll probably throw in some other BS that will not make sense to anybody uh, who who's been really looking at this evidence, and and that's uh, that's the way it goes, and that's why we're being getting prepared to sue them in advance. Yeah, I always tell people that I'm broaching the subject with for the first time, really to look at Building Seven first, because I know I said this on our previous podcast, but. I would say a good one out of every two Americans don't even know that a third building came down on 9-11. And then when you watch it, uh, you know, the, what's the Latin expression? Res ipsa loquitur. It, it speaks for itself. I think it's a great idea that you guys are going at this angle. And, of course, the 
the report from University of Alaska Fairbanks was really the first big university study to validate your skepticism about Building 7 and a lot of other people's skepticism about Building 7. What kind of traction has that report gotten since it's come out? Um, you know, I remember in November we had just started talking about it, but w what have you guys been able to get accomplished now that that report is out and it's, uh, you know, fully detailed? Well, we've put it out there. Um, we've gotten some positive responses back from some associations um, because of COVID-19. Those all got canceled. So we're looking forward to the rescheduling of those uh, speaking opportunities uh, we want to get Leroy Halsey, uh, the Ph.D. professor who and, and, and uh, chairman of the Environmental and Civil Engineering Department there at the University of Alaska in Fairbanks. We want to get him out on the circuit uh, talking uh, because he's retired now and he has the opportunity. This has kind of become a, a bit of a mission of his. We're all about getting him and the team of uh, civil engineers out there, structural engineers too, uh, led by Roland Angle, who's on our board, and he uh, has put together this project called Project Due Diligence. We're trying to force this report and, and the evidence that supports it that we've been talking about for 13 years now uh, out there um, on, now onto the engineering society, the, the universities. So that's our big effort for the fall. We we're kind of hoping that uh, COVID-19 dies down, but now they're kind of pushing a, a, a second wave of this disease. We'll see how that goes. Well, he's got, we'll a, he's got a platform here if he'd like to come on and, and speak to my listeners about it. I know that they would love to hear. Great. Wonderful. We'll, we'll try to make that happen too, Chris. Thank you for that opportunity. Definitely. So talk to me about this new documentary which is really the reason that I wanted to look you back up and, and give you a shout now. You know, I saw that there is a new documentary out. It's called Seven, and I did not get a chance to see it yet, but it has aired on PBS or is going to air on PBS. Can you tell my listeners a little bit about the documentary and where they might be able to check it out, especially if they're new to this? Sure. Uh, this is exciting because uh, we knew we had a, a, a new film that had to be done about this uh, study, the third tower, and and by the University of Alaska, and it, um, it we we went back uh, and realized that hey, Dylan Avery uh, and, and others, uh, Corey Rowe and and um, and the other gentleman, Jason Burmis, who made 9/11 a loose change 9/11 which received 20 million views. Yeah. 9-11 uh, was very popular uh, uh, in the years after 9-11. After and 9-11 uh, Truth was very popular. And uh, this film was just the hallmark. Uh, it's a series of, I think, four different versions now. And uh, so, so Dylan has since become quite the filmmaker himself. He's won uh, awards with uh, films like um, Black and Blue about the police brutality, which is a timely subject in New York. And so uh, we went back to Dylan and, and <clears throat> he said, yeah, I'd love to I'd love to take this up. So he scheduled interviews up in Alaska with Leroy and at the at the, the uh, university there and with uh, two of our other engineers, uh, Roland Angle and Kamal obeyed and another engineer, uh, fire protection engineer, Scott Granger, and they did uh, a great job. This film is uh, almost done, but the five-minute version is done, and we had an opportunity to get this five-minute version on PBS. Uh, so we raised nine thousand uh, dollars with uh, through hundreds of our our supporters, and. Uh, it is now playing as filler between main programs on several PBS stations around the country. Uh, Three million people are guaranteed to see it, and over uh, with 500 viewings uh, over the last month and the next two months. 
So we're right in the middle of this. We uh, we don't know what um, uh, you know when it's going to be played or where because they don't schedule the filler content. Right. But we do know that it's uh, it's it's out there. So when is the final product going to be finished? That'll be uh, late August in time for our uh, conference for September 11th, where we will uh, air the film or or significant pieces of it and have some commentary by the director, uh, Dylan Avery, and and us as the producers. So uh, a very exciting opportunity. By the way, we just, uh, just today, regarding that, virtual conference it's kind of got to be virtual now that covid's got control of of our society here uh, but uh, we'll have david ray griffin and stephen jones and niels Herrett uh, on our conference all together uh talking about their uh their key experiences over the last 15 years or so in 9-11 truth you know there was a time for instance when i went to see david ray griffin at the grand lake theater that there was 600 people there it was packed to capacity and i couldn't even get in that was the the uh the week that i got introduced to 9-11 in uh march of 2006 or may i, I gotta remember that um and i uh, i couldn't even get in i had to go home and listen on the live stream to uh, David Ray Griffin and that was my awakening and so he was on it uh, several years before that uh, and and his it was a interview that he gave a couple of days before that and that was with Bonnie Faulkner in on Guns and Butter in the San Francisco Bay Area here where uh, he was talking about the explosive testimony from identified uh, in number 118 first responders of the 500 that were interviewed that day talked about uh, explosions before the towers came down, most right. of them, and and uh, flashes of light also, and many of them being blown around inside the buildings and who lived uh, to tell about it. That was an incredible testimony that David Ray Griffin had put together from the essay that Graham McQueen put together, David Ray Griffin uh, was, uh, well, he had at least an interview, if not a a whole additional set of written uh, documentary about it. So anyway, David Ray Griffin's going to be a key component now of our virtual conference September 11th and 12th and 13th. I think he'll be on the first day, along with Stephen Jones, who of course is the one who identified the extreme heat of the uh, Twin Towers and Building 7 and uh, documenting the evidence in the dust of extreme heat, like liquid molten iron microspheres, almost naked to the human eye, that are iron. You know, we haven't used iron in our towers for a long time, so where did the elemental iron come from? skyscrapers a hundred years ago that were framed of iron, but nobody knew could figure out where this was coming from. And yet it was documented as the signature component of the world trade center dust, according to the EPA and RJ Lee and the U S geological survey find it in all their studies of the dust. And yet they don't know where it came from and don't even speculate. And yet it's so obvious liquid molten iron is the byproduct of thermite. Thermite being an incendiary used by the military to cut through steel like a hot knife through iron. So this is the discovery of Stephen Jones, uh, what he's primarily uh, known for. And uh, then Niels Harrett, uh, I just talked to them today uh, before, before getting on the interview with you. And I'm just so excited to share that all three of them uh, will be on with us on September 11th to talk about their memories, their their high points, their recommendations for the 9-11 Truth Movement. How do we win this information war? Niels Herod, of course, was most notably responsible for his uh, key work in as the primary author of the 
25-page peer-reviewed paper we spoke about earlier about nanothermite. So uh, these are three giants, foundation, foundational giants upon which uh, we built uh, architects and engineers for 9-11 Truth. Yeah, it's funny when you mentioned, too, about the first responders and their reactions. I'm always drawn back to maybe the clips that I saw in Loose Change, but also various news clips that I've seen over the last two decades about 9-11, where there just seems to be a litany of first responders that acknowledge that Building 7 is going to come down before it does, and continually talk about the explosions in the lobbies of buildings. Um, and so the, the evidence when it's compiled and you get to see one of these things after the other, it becomes it becomes very clear that at the very least, these people heard something. They're not just making... Because the footage is from the day that it happened. So people aren't thinking about what the narrative is. They're just thinking about saying what happened to the best of their ability and the best of their ability to understand it, which is why it's always interesting, too, to watch all of these news reporters say over and over after Seven came down, well, it looks, it rem kind of reminds you of one of those classic demolitions, doesn't it? <laughs> yep. Yeah, they're saying that over and over again. And then when they talk about seeing the explosions as well and the flashes of light, and then the forensic evidence of all this molten iron, they say, flowing like lava down the channel rails down there where they were looking for victims down there. And the heat that didn't dissipate or didn't they, the fires they couldn't put out for three months. Uh, and, and then these meteorites that they were pulling up from deep within the pile, uh, they called them meteorites. It was fused molten metal and, and concrete. I didn't even know concrete could melt. But there's a huge section of molten concrete in the police museum in Manhattan today wrapped around a, a, a police handgun, said it flowed like lava. Well, what can do that? Concrete doesn't even begin to melt until 3,200 degrees Fahrenheit. So that's another example of this this evidence that just goes on and on and on and so available for anyone who's willing to open their eyes and look at it. But, uh, of course, many people won't because it takes us to a place where we don't want to go psychologically. It, it means we'd have to question uh, the degree of, of conspiracy across numerous governmental agencies and in industries uh, like the media, uh, which colluded all together to hide this evidence and to slander the truth tellers as conspiracy theorists. Yeah, and you don't really have to open your eyes that much when it comes to building seven, which is why it's what I harp on. Because even to the untrained eye, to the person that wants to believe, to the average American that believes the government story and believes that you denigrate that story by asking questions, which of course is obviously not how we feel. But those people can very clearly say, even with the untrained eye, all right, you know, two planes hit these buildings. So I understand why they both came down. Seven is a very different story because it comes down in similar fashion, like you said, at free fall. But there is no plane. There is, you know, there there's ancillary damage from the other towers. We're told there's office fires. We can see some office fires. But I think another part of the problem too, Richard, is that a lot of people don't have the technical know-how and the experience of how steel, what the properties of steel are and how buildings are built specifically for the purpose of avoiding things like a collapse if a fire were to break out in, you know, one floor of the building or an entire section of the building. So as an architect, I mean, do you think you can explain that a little bit further? Yeah, I think so. Um, we have, we create steel frames not only strong enough to, to hold the loads that are imposed on them by 
the weight of the building itself, the things that uh, people move into there, the people themselves, uh, but also the wind load uh, that's upon the building, uh, uh, earthquake loads. These are lateral loads upon the building. On top of all of that, we make them three to five times stronger with safety factors. Uh, so these, we've never lost, for instance, a building due to fire, a skyscraper uh, that ha- that's a steel frame fireproof skyscrapers never collapsed uh, completely due to do fire. Uh, and so that's another load that we very conservatively design these buildings to resist because we put fireproofing in there. And the fireproofing is uh, designed to last six times longer than the fire is expected to last in any given area. And this is even uh, acknowledged by NIST in the case of Building 7. But then they contradict their own statement, which is exactly what I just said, by saying that the fire was somehow burning around Column 79 uh, for several hours uh, after uh, and up until the time of the collapse. And, and so there's two inherent contradictions which are actually lies right there. The videos and photos themselves show that the fire moved on after about 20 minutes being in that area and moved off to the west uh, and then was burned out in the, on that floor over an hour before the building came down. So how could the building have come down by uh, thermal expansion, which has, which NIST says, uh, if the fire wasn't expanding those beams at the time of the collapse? So <clears throat> there's they're just stretching so far, and nobody looked at this. You know, who read a thousand-page report that came seven years after 9-11? Nobody was interested in it by that time because we have these traumas built up around the collapse of the Twin Towers and we just don't want to go back there. It was very painful. I mean, this you, you, it's just easier to sweep it under the rug, psychologically speaking, as well as the cover-up of the evidence uh, in terms of what NIST and the, and the international media has done. But this wakes us up to a conspiracy that we can't fathom in our own minds because surely people say there would have been a whistleblower well if if there was a whistleblower would we have heard about it what are they going to do go to cnn and talk about it cnn has covered up all of the false flag operations that have occurred in in the last several decades uh and more going back to JFK and so forth, as well as the rest of the mainstream media, which is owned, by the way, by 90% of it, 95% of it's owned by just five corporations. Well, who runs those corporations? The University of Sonoma State University has a, has a project called Project Censored, which reviews the most pro- censored stories uh, every year. And they found in their research that uh, the boards of directors of the of the mainstream media are are also sitting on boards of directors of other uh, corporations in the arms industry, the oil industry, the banking industry, the insurance industry. They're interlocking. They all move as a body, and they are not uh, in the interests of the American people. The things that they do. Uh, so. People really need to wake up that 9-11 is really simply a wake-up call. If you can get your head wrapped around 9-11, which is hard enough to do, it, it starts the dominoes to fall right. on all of these other uh, problems which you talk about on your radio station. Yeah, and you don't have to start with the idea that the government is behind it all, or you don't have to start with any kind of wide, broad, crazy nutty conspiracy theory that's all you know brought up all the time people say oh there you know there's people out there that say there were no planes you don't have to start with that all you got to do is just focus on seven ask some questions look into it as eddie bravo would say and then uh from there if you're not satisfied then you start to ask the follow-up questions of why or how but to your point about the media 
And the point about this still to this day being a emotional kind of reactionary topic. I mean, we did our last talk in November and I was getting hate mail for days. And oh, dear. First off, I'm I'm surprised that people think that they can tell you what you should talk about and what you shouldn't talk about. But I get the nastiest messages when I talk about 9-11. I really do, because I know it pulls on the heartstrings of a lot of people, and I know how many people were affected. But, I mean, especially in this day and age, Richard, we have all this social unrest now and all these uh, issues that are being protested about. I've been saying for the last couple of weeks that civil discourse and an open mind, I think, are the most important things here. And when you go to discuss something like this, even though it's 20 years past when it happened, uh, the requirements are that you try to look at it objectively and you try to, you know, remove your biases and you try to speak about it openly. Do you agree with that? Yep. That's what well, I try to do. Um, I'm learning all kinds of things since I became a 9-11 truth activist. I've learned about other conspiracies, and I didn't want to really acknowledge those. But my God, at this point, I can't believe anything the media or our government is telling us because they lied about the biggest thing that ever happened, the, the crime of the century. Complete lies. Now, if they can lie about that, what else can they lie about? What else are they lying about? Well, I've learned that they're lying about COVID-19. I've learned that they're lying about uh, the response to COVID-19 uh, with the, um, the, the, the destruction of our economy, basically, and uh, uh, other draconian measures taking place, uh, not too unlike the ones that took place after 9-11, such as the Patriot Act, the Military Commissions Act, uh, and the Defense Authorization Act of 2012, which stripped uh, many of our hard-fought civil liberties by our forefathers when this country was formed. That's continuing now. Uh, the, the surveillance uh, is, is uncanny. Our emails are all being read, and we, we all kind of know this. But we do nothing about it. Right. It's it's an incredible situation where where Snowden has been basically used to basically tell people what's going on uh, in, in a way perhaps that that uh, is 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 disarming the people at the same time it's informing them. Uh, that's the best type of uh, control there is. Let me, I have two questions I want to ask you. I want to go back to the documentary real quick, Seven. What are we going to learn about in that documentary that people like me who, you know, I've watched Loose Change, I've watched my favorite 9-11 film, although I don't agree with all of it, but I think it's the most comprehensive body, which is called September 11th, The New Pearl Harbor, made by the... Uh, this Italian gentleman, which is four hours long. It's on YouTube if you can find it. Easily the most comprehensive look at everything involving 9-11. If you can watch all four hours of that and you come out of it without asking some questions, uh, I think you got some problems. But <laughs> Yeah, that's Massimo Mazzucco. Yeah. exceptional oh, film. What a brilliant documentary. And I know I've mentioned it on this podcast before, but what an absolutely brilliant documentary. If you can watch those things and you're like me, what am I going to see in, in the seven documentary that's going to be new to me? You, you will see some in-depth analysis of this building, which we're told came down by fire. So what uh, you'll see the, the story of, of Leroy Halsey and as he approached the problem of this building, because first he thought, I better look at this. You know, because there are hundreds of similarly designed buildings out there, high-rise buildings, that are subject to fires as well. Well, if Building 7 could come down at free fall due to a few randomly scattered, small, uh, and not very hot fires, then, then we have a real problem right. in the industry, the building industry, the architecture industry, the structural engineering industry. It's a huge problem, and it's a problem, actually, NIST tried to cover themselves up 
by making recommendations for structural changes. But guess what? Not one of those recommendations for structural changes in steel frame buildings has ever been incorporated into the International Building Code. They were completely ignored by the International Conference of Building Officials. So you'll see this complete uh, incoherent response on the part of the industry and NIST, actually, to reality. Uh, Realities like the modeling of the building with two separate computer programs, uh, SAP 2000 and Abacus, very sophisticated structural engineering programs, as they independently confirm, prove, actually, all of NIST's uh, various portions of their theory, such as one, that shear studs were broken on on uh, shear studs tie this structural uh, steel beam to the concrete slab up above. They disprove the, the entire direction of the movement of the floor in response to the fire. And that's even using incredibly hot fires that NIST used. Uh, those were uh, 500 degree Celsius fires, what, about 1200 degree Fahrenheit, but which the fires were not that hot. You can basically prove that by the videos and photos. But they used the most conservative values that NIST used. And then even with those conservative values, they disprove uh, their theory that the beam wouldn't even have moved in the direction the girder off of column 79, the seat that it was sitting on there, but it would have actually moved uh, the other way. Uh, so we also have uh, the disproving that uh, the, of the sequential failures. No, the only thing in the end that uh, Professor Halsey and his team of researchers could make the building come down in the way that the videos and photos show it came down vertically, symmetrically, free fall, is to to take out all of the columns inside, followed by 1.3 seconds later, all the columns outside. So the film tell, what can do that again? Explosives, incendiaries. So so they completely, so the the film tells the story uh, of this uh, process. And and, in the end, you're left... uh, with your jaw open, actually uh, wondering how NIST can even look anybody in the eye. Sean Sunder is the co-project leader of NIST himself, and John Gross, the co-project leader, how they can look anybody in the eye after this is out there. And we're getting it out to all the universities. We're sending it to NIST themselves, of course, and now sent them this request for correction, which they have to respond to in some coherent manner, which they will be hard-pressed to do. So that's the effort that the film makes, to put into anyone's face the fraudulence of NIST. Yeah, I absolutely can't wait to see it, uh, because I've watched... I watched a great debate between Mick West and somebody else who was trying to debunk the uh, study right after it came out. And so it'll be very interesting to take a look at the study from the point of view of Dr. Halsey in the process of doing it. Um, Just another angle to cover it. And, And hopefully my hope for it is that it is done in a fashion that is palatable to people that are being introduced to it for the first time. I think as time progresses and the reactionary kind of emotions uh, die down when people respond to this idea and you know shit we're coming up on 20 years now uh, it's a long time I mean it's 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 now in the history books there's you know there's been 20 years of, of new people being born that weren't alive when this happened which is wild to think about you know I remember my parents always saying I lived through you know Vietnam you weren't there you know and I was like yeah 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 whatever and now I know you know now I know I have to go back and I gotta watch a a documentary on it or something if I really want to know how fucked up the Vietnam War is and I have (laughs) yeah hopefully that this documentary makes that palatable for people that are still not there or haven't broached the subject yet have you seen the entire film yet no I've seen pieces of it Uh, he's still putting it together 
Um, so uh, that I'm very excited to see the rough cut actually this 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 week or early next week. So uh, that's going to be uh, really good. And we've got a uh, uh, film distribution company uh, talking to us about uh, getting it uh, uh, distributed and also onto Netflix. So that's very exciting. Netflix would be absolutely crucial. That would be huge. And, yeah. And, uh, you know, you, you always have a distribution channel through my YouTube channel if you would like it as well. I have about 12,000 subscribers on there, and I have 125,000 followers on Twitter. So I'm more than happy to take a copy of it and host it up there if that's something you would you guys would want. If not, that's fine also. Um, and I want to go back to one more thing before we uh, wrap up. You just said that one conspiracy kind of begat another conspiracy for you, and you mentioned COVID. And so I'm interested in going off topic for a second and asking you what your thoughts on COVID are. I just have an extreme amount of skepticism after watching what's available on YouTube. Um, just look at Dale Bigtree on Highwire. Uh, he's and, and he's just the beginning. Uh, Doctor, what's his name? Bashid Rashar. Uh, you mean can you? Just, can you unbutcher that name for me? Um, no, you don't have that one. No, there's, there, <laughs> you're on your own, buddy. <laughs> there's uh, there's incredible testimony. Uh, the the uh, oh, how about how about the gentleman who was the bio warfare legal expert who's now exposing that this is a bio warfare uh, uh, um, uh, vaccine? Excuse me. Uh, virus um and then uh they just decimate the official story on all accounts i mean we're being lied to by fauci and company and bill gates who have invested uh millions uh in into the vaccines which they profit from so they're they're all gearing up to sell us uh their latest brand of, of vaccines and make it mandatory and, and God only knows what's going to be in there. We've gotten hints of what's going to be on there, in there. And it's just really, really scary. They're engineering uh, RNA in our body. Uh, it's, it's really not good, Chris. I hope you have some guests on that know a hell of a lot more about it than I do. Do you think the virus is, I mean, you think the virus is a thing though, right? You think COVID is a real thing that has... You know, you think it's, yeah. it's a real virus. Okay, well, the, it's, I'm it's trying hurting. to start from the outside in because I know there's a lot of people that think that that's not even it's not even a virus. That's not even out there. And well, it's a form of the flu, and it's a, it's a bad flu. Uh, but uh, if you watch the media, you you'd think that uh, it's going to kill us all. Uh, that I no, agree with you on, and I think that the <laughs> amount of people that have had it, uh, I think this idea that you know we're still catching it in the early stages is is crazy i think it china lied about it i think it came out of the wuhan institute of virology i think china lied about it to you know sign the trade deal and to try and cover it up and i think while we were sitting around with our thumbs up our asses in november december even maybe even earlier than that thinking everything was fine and traveling around and going about life as usual this thing was spreading. Actually, the CDC, Richard, released a report today that said that, you know, 10 times as many people, there may, have been, there may be up to 20 million people in the U.S. that have already been infected. And yesterday, Penn State put out a study that said that 80 million people or 80 times more people have been infected back in March than we thought. And that means to me... As an outside observer, two things. One, it means that this was here a lot earlier than we thought. And the second thing is that it's a lot less lethal than we may think, because if that's the case, the denominator for the case fatality rate would be much larger than we're being led to believe. But what's going on in the media now, Richard, is we are getting a case-by-case -case count of the deaths, we are not getting any type of detail about the deaths, whether there were underlying conditions, what the ages were. We're just seeing 100,000 dead or 110,000 dead or X amount dead in this state and that state. What do, you, what do you think about the idea that it's been here longer than we think? Well, that sounds very plausible. That's all new to me. I'm, I'm just grateful that you, you found it and you're talking about it. And I don't trust anything that, that comes uh, from 
from our government anymore. I'm now a thoroughly qualified skeptic <laughs> of, of the media and the government. So I get my news uh, from shows like yours and others that have the courage to talk about uh, the things that the media will not, won't uh, talk about. They're just pushing a narrative that's very dangerous uh, for the American people and 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 we're sheep you know we we as a as a people we tend to just uh, believe what we're told and it's it's extremely dangerous if there's one piece of good news about that it's that becoming a content creator is easier now than it's ever been and all of the free thinkers and the people that have the wherewithal to challenge the official narrative regardless of whether it's about 9/11 or it's about covid or it's about anything those people now have an outlet at least until all of the social media companies start to censor all of us right <laughs> yeah but uh, you you can create your content but have you experienced like we have uh, censorship of that content by the owners of these platforms youtube twitter well, etc i had youtube take down one of my episodes with uh cornell professor dave column which was he is a uh, he's a professor of organic chemistry, and we discussed a litany of conspiracy theories. We talked about uh, 9/11. We talked about the Las Vegas shooting. We talked about JFK. We talked about the moon landing. Uh, all of the conspiracy theories du jour. You know, we touched all the bases. He had varying degrees of skepticism on all of those topics. For some reason, it was taken down from YouTube and was labeled as hate speech. Which oh I, yeah, I was never able to get an explanation on that. Yep, somebody interviewed me, and it was taken down as hate speech, and you can't get an explanation; they won't give it to you, and and you have no recourse. We got our we, we, we had a film on Building Seven, the earlier one we made in 2013. It was made uh, narrated by Ed Asner, uh, the actor, and it was made also for PBS actually, and that one. Uh, had uh, half a million views and it was taken down and we, we didn't even, I don't even know what the reason was. Yeah. It was some, it wasn't even hate speech. It was, it was just really lame and we couldn't write to anybody. You can't talk to anybody. Uh, we, we got a lawyer involved. He couldn't do anything. So we put it back up and now it's got 350,000. It would have had almost a million views by now. It gets tougher and tougher to think that it's just not people upstairs saying shut it down i mean when the when the coronavirus started all of the what happened when the coronavirus started was this website zero hedge got banned from twitter after it put out an article suggesting that there was a doctor in the wuhan institute of virology who may have been responsible for the virus people that were talking about the virus even in late January, early February, and were critical of the World Health Organization, who has been towing China's uh, state media line and has also ignored the fact that China could be understating its infections, and also was the same organization that told us not to wear masks. Remember that brilliant one from yeah. back in February? And people exactly. like me were out there tweeting, well, if we don't need to wear masks, but they want masks for the doctors, then don't tell us that they don't work because they obviously work if they need them for healthcare providers, which is a little, you know, logic nugget that you can just make sense of. Um, but right off the bat, the social media companies came out and said, if you're, what you're writing or what you're recording doesn't meet the World Health Organization or the CDC's narrative, it's going to be essentially shadow banned it won't show up in search results the way other things will and there will be a label appended to it and you know i'm not surprised that the same thing happens when you start to ask other big questions like you're doing richard yeah it's it's just it's massive censorship um i i i i was going to share something with you that was really important and it slipped my mind so now you have to ask me another question. Well, you were talking about Ed Asner and you were talking about that documentary and how that had been pulled down and then you put it back up and it got 350,000 views. And then we were talking about media censorship and the banning of content creators and the uh, the rise of content creators as well. I don't know if that <laughs> jogs your memory. 
<laughs> yeah, it was something about censorship there. Um, uh, it, it, it's, it's on the tip of my tongue, but it's, may, it may not come back. I may just be sit here bumbling. <laughs> that, <laughs> so let's let that one go. That's fine. That sounds good. All right. Well, Richard, I want to thank you very much for taking the time out of your day to come on. I, I look forward to checking out the documentary in a couple of months when it comes out. I hope that you wind up getting the Netflix distri- distribution deal. And like I said, you, you have carte blanche to have uh, Dr. Halsey on, on my show and have the documentary on my channel for as long as YouTube will keep it up. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Thank you, Chris. It's an honor to be here with you. And uh, let's do it again sometime. All right, Richard. Speak to you soon. Thank you so much. All right. Take care. Bye-bye.